welcome to the Coach Steve Clark Show, where he will encourage, inspire, and equip coaches, players, and parents who will in turn motivate and help others to promote the great game of tennis, foster sportsmanship, and develop greater players and people. Thanks for joining us, and here's your host, Steve Clark. Hello, everyone. Uh, thanks so much for tuning into the show today. I know you're going to enjoy listening as we delve into tennis with respect to training, biomechanics, technique, injury prevention, and a whole lot more. Whether you are a parent, a player, whether you're old or young as a player, uh, or as a coach, I trust you'll walk away with something today that you can help change what you're doing or help change for others and impact change in their lives. My guest is Mark Dr. Mark Kovacs, uh, he's a performance physiologist, a researcher, a professor, author, speaker, and coach with an extensive background uh, in training and researching with elite athletes. He is known as the go-to expert for elite and professional athletes, corporate executives, and performance artists looking for science-based program to optimize human performance. He's the CEO of COVAX Institute, and he oversees the direction, testing, and protocols, and athlete monitoring programs along with his staff. He's also been a consultant, and still is, for, for the USTA. I know he does a lot of work with the ITA, which is the uh, Intercollegiate Tennis Coaches Association, and he also works with the International Tennis Performance Institute, the ITPA. He holds a PhD in exercise physiology and speaks from firsthand experience because he was an All-American at Auburn University and an NCAA doubles champion. And uh, along those lines, uh, you know, having a, a PhD myself um, and being an All-American, but falling short and only coming second in the country, I still remember those days and it's like a bummer. So for him to actually be a national champion is something really special that nobody can ever take away from you. Um, so he's highly qualified, and the one thing you will find about it in our time together is that Mark can explain difficult things to the regular Joe. In that vein, I would like to plug his book, and he has numerous ones, um, Tennis Anatomy, your il illustrated guide for tennis strength, speed, power, and agility. You can purchase it directly on my website, CoachSteveClarkPhD.com, or on his website, which I'll be giving you in a minute, and uh, going to the resources on my website, I'm sure when all is said and done in this short time, you will gain a ton of insight. And so I'd like to welcome Mark, and I'm so fired up about you being on and sharing your experience with us. So thanks for being on. Thanks so much for having me. Super excited to be on with you. Uh, I love all the work you do. We've been colleagues for many, many years, so it's exciting for me to be on here with you. Well, I appreciate that. And Prior to kind of getting into some of the questions and dialogue, I'd like to give, uh, give you, uh, Mark, some time up front to share what you think most people need to know that might even encourage them to look up your resources, listen to our discussion, and ultimately make changes for the better, whether they are parents of players uh, or coaches, you know, that sort of thing. So just uh, maybe open up the floor to see what you might have to say generally to folks. Yeah, no, definitely. From my background, you know, I, I'm a tennis guy by heart. I've spent most of my career in the tennis space, but over the last nearly decade now, I've done a lot with other sports as well. Uh, and, you know, we do a lot of uh, work with individual athletes, 
uh, with teams, with leagues, with national sports governing bodies. But the biggest consistent factor is the relationship between the coach and the player and then that triad between the coach, player, parent. If we're talking about a youth athlete, and it's so important to get everyone on the same page from a standpoint of do you know the baseline levels of the athlete across the board, technical, tactical, physical, mental, and do you have a plan of attack? Because no one has the perfect solution. There isn't one way to do anything, but there is better ways to do things. And especially if you're monitoring your athletes on a regular basis, you can adjust if you see what you're doing isn't working as well as you would like. You can pivot and make adjustments. And the best coaches in the world do that. Uh, the best parents in the world do that as well, is they put a, put a plan together, but understanding that it's dynamic. And the only quality way to make adjustments is if you monitor well. So that would be my initial sort of concept and advice to folks listening is, you know, Trust in a plan, trust in a purpose, trust in a way of doing things, but also monitor enough that you know when and how best to change paths slightly if needed. That's, uh, uh, needless to say, that's great advice. That's also how we play tennis matches. You have a plan. 100%. You have a game style, and you have to stay true to it, and you got to go to plan A, sub point one plan a sub point two then you get to b and c sometimes you throw the kitchen sink in at whatever you need to take you know uh, do to uh, take the win but uh, the one thing i would say there is i man that really resonates because you know you have to balance that and maybe you can chime in on this you have to balance that with this we're always talking about the process okay guys uh young lady young man uh, club player trust the process this this technique this strategy will work out in the long haul um, and then there's a, that balance between kind of being stubborn and sticking with the process. And, you know, even though it doesn't seem like it's going anywhere and eventually it comes through, we see that with elite athletes all the time or even in business, et cetera. And that fine balance of going, you, you know what, the, the big picture process is this, but let's find a different way to go about getting that done. Is that what you're saying? Exactly. And that's that's across fields, across industries. Uh, execution uh, is everything. Results are important. You know, development is is priority at certain stages uh, of an athlete's career, but results do play a huge role. We're in a merit-based environment, and you need to succeed at some point. Yeah, yeah. Well, one question I have, uh, kind of a segue into all this, is uh, the title of this one particular book, uh, Tennis Anatomy, and it talks about the uh, strength, speed, power, and agility. And even the title needs some educating because a lot of people don't understand the difference between uh, strength, speed, power. And, and a lot of times, and some of these questions later on have to do with that, if you're training uh, you know, it's very common, for example, coaches, whether it's at high school, they're, you know, at certain periods in the war- workout, they do certain things thinking, oh, let's work on our foot speed. Yet what would, what you want to do with agility is have it when you're the most fresh and sometimes do that at the beginning as opposed to the end. So at least, or if you change it up, at least know what you're doing. Could you maybe uh, define and maybe give some examples of each of those uh, related to tennis, maybe pick a serve or how, how do you get speed or maybe how you're moving on the court, the speed, agility, power, 
and how you might put those into a workout. I mean, it might sound like a lot, but throwing it out there. No, 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 definitely. So you bring up a really, really important uh, question and, and topic because, one, you have to know what you're training. That's first. Understand the needs of the sport and what you're trying to train. Then you've got to understand how it fits into the physiology of an athlete and when you can optimize or those windows of trainability is really, really important. And one of the biggest factors is most tennis programs around the country and even around the world actually don't structure their daily plan uh, to optimize an athlete's physiology and response to training. It's really sad, actually, because you have, let's say, a three-hour window for training on court and physical, or it could be four hours, depending on how you set it up. But you have the ability to schedule that most optimally. Uh, so... What most people do and what we see a lot is we see the fitness session after the tennis practice, which logistically may make sense, but physiologically may not make the most sense, especially, as you mentioned, if you're trying to work on speed, agility, or power. So speed, agility, and power are three different components. I'll talk about strength in a second. But speed is about how quickly can you move. Agility, simply put, is how well can you change direction and things like that. And the third is power, which is how much force can you produce quickly? So how can you use whatever strength you have as fast as possible? So those three components all have a major nervous system response, meaning that we've got to send the signal from the brain to the muscle and sometimes back unbelievably quickly. And to do that, your body and your mind needs to be fresh. And if you do a fitness session at the end of a hard tennis practice, and are trying to get your athletes faster, more agile, and or more powerful, you're not going to accomplish that. What you are going to accomplish is develop potentially muscular endurance, or what we may call tennis-specific endurance as well, uh, which is not a bad thing. That's a training component. But if your true goal is to make an athlete faster and more powerful, you need to structure those workouts, focus on that when the athlete's fresh. Then from a strength standpoint, Strength is predominantly how much force can you move or how much force can you uh, take in, so can you load yourself with. So from a tennis standpoint, we have body weight. We know that we don't add a 300-pound barbell to our back when we play tennis. <laughs> we're not wearing a 100-pound weight vest when we're running around the tennis court. So we don't have any external load on us like what many people think. However, we do put two, three, sometimes even four times body weight on our body when we sprint across the court and have to stop on one step on one leg. We know that we get up to four times body weight going through that one leg when we have to decelerate so quickly. So we are doing significant strength training or need to use significant strength to help us decelerate that. So all those components need to be trained at different times throughout the session and they all have to be put into a well-structured, well-periodized training program. Oh, that's that's great. Wow. Uh, related to that, uh, Mark, you mentioned in uh, in your book, you talk about to achieve training adaptations such as power, speed, the things we just talked about. You mentioned you load the specific variable greater than you currently do, and I think that's just what you were addressing and for example, that's where bungee cords come in, maybe even having a weight, a weight vest. Sometimes, you know, you can do things like that. You know, some of these things are cost prohibitive. But for, you know, from collegiate to even your average Joe working out, 
are there things, let's say if they, um, and you know, maybe in some of your resources, there are examples of how you can increase the load in a controlled setting. And this is where you don't want to get injury. If you're tired at the end, you don't want to do this, but when you're fresh and you can be explosive, um, are there some things, for example, I, I think I've even seen you do one where if you're doing a serve, you, you somehow ground them a little bit, maybe with a bungee, so they have to jump up or something to be able to create a little more explosiveness through the legs and the hip. Yeah, most definitely. So that everything you're describing, we, you know, we we call assistance um, uh, resistance training. Sorry, um, when we're adding resistance to an athlete, so the, the athlete is having to jump, move, do something against the resistance, so it's harder than what they could do by themselves. Uh, so again, the objective is can they recruit more muscle fibers than they would do normally, and they have to instigate that movement against the resistance. So when they take the resistance off and they go back to body weight, they can actually perform at a higher level. Just like strength training builds the legs, you know, this is resistance training, which is the same concept on the court. So your example on the serve is one very good example where we use a either a bungee cord or we can use just a thick band, elastic tubing around the athlete's waist, uh, and they have to actually perform a serve. They can either hit it in real time or just mimic the motion where they have to load the leg, especially the back leg on the serve, more and explode up quickly. The biggest challenge, anytime you add resistance, you don't want the athlete to alter technique to accommodate the resistance, right. meaning that... If the resistance is too hard for the athlete, they're going to try to recruit the wrong muscles, the wrong sequence, poor technique, which one could potentially injure the athlete, which is really what we don't want to have happen. Or two, they may not injure them, but they may change their mechanical patterning into a negative pattern that could actually cause them to perform worse. And unfortunately, I see that a lot, especially at the younger ages and the weaker athletes. Because uh, people are treating everyone the same. Let's say if you've got a group of 20 athletes in your squad mm -hmm. and you have them all do the exact same exercise at the same resistance, that common sense-wise tells you that doesn't make a lot of sense. Some of the athletes are going to get too much resistance. Other athletes are not going to get enough resistance. So we have to do a better job of personalizing. Right, and that's and that's you know part of this is you know I'm sure there's some high school coaches listening in. It's like you got thirty, forty people out there, and it's 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 tough. Um, but that's so one of the I, reasons I, I, why I, I think minimally well, you wouldn't want to do it at the end. Yeah, yeah. One suggestion on that because that is a fair valid point, and I work with quite a lot of teams, um, not not only in tennis but in other sports where you do have large numbers. And usually, what we'll do is we'll break the groupings into at least three groups and sometimes five groups. And that way you can still treat them as a group, but they, they're at least in a segment or a band of athletes that have a similar physical capabilities to them. Because all these groups have the start athlete that can handle a lot of resistance, that is just you know, well-trained, genetically more gifted, all those things. Mm -hmm. Then you have a mid-group that is good athletes, but not great. They're sort of that middle-of-the-pack athlete. And then you've got that third group, which is usually that somewhat unathletic individual that just everything's hard for them. They maybe don't have the greatest genetics in the world, but they're, they're there. They're, they're maybe a good tennis player. They just don't have the physical capabilities yet. Um, so that's the group. And then the goal is to try to tell them, hey, you're in these groups. That's where we're at. Your goal is to, to try to get to the top group at some point. 
So it's a competitive environment for them to see if they can move. Good. Yeah, that's uh, well put. You mentioned in there, and it's related to this, rest. Rest, is you mentioned, is one of the most overlooked aspects of training program. And can you explain that, for example, um, you know, maybe give some examples? Because, you know, in fact, the last topic you just mentioned, this is why actually – uh, you know, training hard, training, your training should be harder than a match because our, our, our technique breaks down when we're fatigued. And it's the reason why you don't want to do it at the end. You might injure somebody if, if you're, if you're overloading them, but the rest factor, some people perceive rest as, oh, you shouldn't be resting. Come on, man, push it, push it. But rest is critical. And, uh, what do you mean specifically by rest when you're talking about that? Yeah, great, great, important, uh, concept. I mean, I spent a lot of my career on the concept of training load and recovery, and rest is a component of that. And there's two really broad areas of rest. Is One is you've got rest during a workout, meaning that you're giving the body enough time to repair, recover. And we're talking usually energy system recovery. So depending on what you're trying to accomplish, if you're redlining an athlete during a practice session, their power output and their speed decreases. That's just how the physiology works. You can't redline an athlete and maintain power output and speed at the same level. They're going to fatigue out. So that may be your goal. You maybe say, hey, we want to develop endurance, muscular endurance, whatever it is, which is fine if you understand that that's the goal. But if you're truly trying to get speed and power, which tennis is a speed and power sport, but it needs to be produced over an extended period of time. So typically you need to provide enough recovery time in between drills, in between points to let the athlete recover. And simple ways is heart rate. The athlete's heart rate's up at 180. That's hard to maintain at high velocity, high power outputs. You can't maintain it at that. You need them to come down to say 120 to 140 and then restart a drill. That's why shorter drills are are more recommended now We know points aren't that long in tennis, yet a lot of people still drill way too long without rest. So that's one aspect of rest, is we want to hit the same possibly number of balls, but we want to do them in 5, 10, 15 ball increments, then rest, and then do it again, and repeat that cycle for many times, rather than doing just one five-minute drill, and then rest. So you'll hit the totally the same number of balls, but your intensity level is going to be more realistic more like a match. So that's one aspect of rest, is rest within a training session. But then the other aspect is resting outside of the training session. So everyone's got lifestyle stresses. It could be school, it could be family, it could be all sorts of factors. So optimizing our recovery and rest outside of the practice and training time is paramount. An athlete's job, if they want to be very good, is to optimize everything they can to perform well during training sessions and during match play. And improving sleep, of course, is a major part of this. For a teenager, it's sleep. 100%. The the basics still are the most important. We can talk about all the fancy sports science stuff that I may do with some of our elite athletes, but in general, the majority of things most athletes need to do to improve recovery and rest is sleep better and eat better. They can do those two things, you're going to take care of most of the big picture aspects of rest. 
And, you know, sleeping is, hey, get more hours, obviously, you know, and make sure that the type of sleep that you get uh, is productive, meaning that we know there's, there's data to support the earlier you go to bed, the better quality sleep you have than going to bed late. Uh, and then the other part is, you know, not utilizing your phones, blue lights, things like that in that hour before you go to bed. So that's a really important strategy is set your phone that an hour before bedtime, the phone goes off, which is not easy for people to do, but that's, that's a really important component. Uh, and then also set your room temperature a little cooler than you may be doing now because it, it's been shown to help with sleep quality. Uh, which is a big component of sleeping well. And then on the nutrition side, most young athletes, especially growing athletes, don't eat enough total calories, but especially they don't get enough protein. And protein is sort of that building blocks of muscle. we got to make sure we get enough protein in our diets. So that's a big area that can help with rest and recovery. That right there, those that last point, you know, I'm not, uh, I think in our culture, yeah, I don't know if it's changing so much, but, you know, it's a Protestant work ethic where it's like work, 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 sleep, sleep gets in the way, you know. Um, but I think it's it's bearing out that, uh, you know, the, um, you know, the sleep is important. Um, just, <laughs> I think people just are kind of averse to it. Like, yeah, come on, get up, you know, athletes train, you know, uh uh, rowers get up at 4 a.m., you know, so so sometimes people think, oh, you know, it doesn't, you don't need that much, but you do, but I think the things you said right there are worth the, worth your listening in, folks, right there, especially if you're working with young kids or high school or even uh, some of the collegiates, but uh, we're beyond, but that, those, the diet, the getting off the devices and even for, you know, the TV, et cetera, before and the protein, et cetera, that's, uh, that's great advice. And it's uh, and it's research backed. <laughs> yeah, for sure, and it, and it helps. I mean, it's like you know, no one wants to do stuff that doesn't make them better. So that's right. the biggest thing is just remember you got you do the stuff that makes you better. You mentioned about the the importance of shoulder area. You know, the, I call it the shoulder shoulder girdle. I don't know if that's you know accurate, but uh, you know, one of the things. I mean, this is the most overused joint, I would think. Uh, and maybe you can elaborate on this. On you know, it serves volleys. Everything is pretty much through the shoulder. Uh, and you talk about uh, fatigue-resistant deltoid area, you know, the acceleration and the deceleration th- phases of strokes. Maybe you can touch on that particularly, I think, with – I'm, I've seen more K-tape uh, in the last five years than I've seen in my entire life. You know, I don't – you know, it's fairly recent anyway. But it seems like people just have their shoulders taped up, and particularly young kids. And, uh, you know, is it – are they just overtraining. I mean, speak speak maybe on time of serves you hit, or is it a technique issue? Is it the equipment issue? Um, so is this is the shoulder becoming more of a problem? The injuries there, and uh, what's some ways, if that's the case, what are ways to kind of uh, mitigate that, especially for younger kids? Really, really great point because the shoulder is one of the most commonly injured or affected areas in tennis. We know shoulder and lower back. Uh, and and the knees. Those are the three big ones. The wrist, we, we're getting more and more now, especially in your higher-level players, um, but it still isn't as much as shoulder, lower back, and knees. Those are the three sort of main areas that we see at all levels of the game. We did some studies a while back, looked at the differences between young juniors, 
high school age juniors, collegiate players and professional players, and then senior players. And there were different profiles of injuries, which makes some sense. But in general, it still came down to those major areas. So the thing with the shoulder, like you said, there is more use of taping techniques. Uh, Kinesio tape, for the folks that are listening that aren't familiar with it, those are those colored tapes that you see out there. Uh, now they're all sorts of colors. Um, <laughs> but the concept in general is, if you remember, if you think back to you know, basketball 20 years ago when people would tape their ankles, they were using a very stiff white tape um, which was very stiff. It would actually not allow any movement at all. That's quite different to the kinesio tape. The kinesio tape is actually quite elastic. There's a lot of give in that tape. And the purpose of it isn't to basically have a stiff environment where you your joint or, or the muscle, and actually they put it on the muscle a lot, uh, can't move. It's really a proprioceptive uh, concept. So it's trying to provide some mild feedback to the body to realize, hey, we don't want to move too far, but it won't stop you moving too far, if that makes sense. So the data on uh, kinesio tape is not great from a standpoint of preventing injuries and things like that, but there is a somewhat uh, perceived benefit by a lot of people. So similar to ice baths, you know, athletes feel better sometimes when they're using them, but the data on them actually helping with a lot of things is not great. So I wouldn't overuse um, kinesio tape as a treatment technique for certain things that may be useful. The bigger question, like you mentioned, is why is this happening? Why is a 14-year-old coming in with shoulder pain? That should not happen. You know, Especially a 6- through 12-year-old, they should not have any injuries, really, because at that age, they haven't started growing. Um, their forces on the body are very, very low. So we really shouldn't be seeing injury rates in pre-pubertal athletes. That's a real concern if you're seeing elbow issues, joint-related issues, things like that, lower back pain. So be very concerned if you if you see those symptoms. As they start growing, we do get some growth-related pain. I mean, growth-related pain, we have to understand the difference between pain and injury. Many times as an athlete grows, there is joint-related pain, shoulder pain, elbow pain, knee pain. The challenge is, is it structural in nature, meaning there's a real problem, or is it just, hey, we're growing for a few months very quickly and we're, we're causing some pain because of that? If it's growth-related pain, the way we typically do it is we automatically recommend a 30% reduction in volume. It doesn't matter what the situation is. We just say, hey, if you're coming in and, hey, my shoulder's feeling it a little bit today, don't push through it, especially during the growth phase. You know, when they are past their growth phase, that's one thing. When they're younger, that's another thing. But when they're going through the growth phase, we want to reduce volume because we know the two predictors of injury are poor technique and excessive volume. And we can deal with both. The excessive volume is easy to fix. Uh, the poor technique is relatively easy to fix if you know what, if you know what you're looking at. So we need to attack it from both areas and make sure that you have a plan in place. So growth-related pain, reduce volume by 30%. From a competitive junior, if you're training 20 hours a week, that only drops you down you know, you know, to 16 hours a week. So you're not really dropping down that much. That's, uh, that's really good. And paying attention to you know, yourself, your body, and athletes. And I think a lot of people 
don't realize that most athletes play with pain, some level of pain, and it's uh, you know a certain level. But it's you just got to learn how to monitor yourself and, like you say, uh, reduce and uh, be a little smarter about it. And then you got to figure out the cause because pain's right. a right. symptom; it's not the cause. You've got to determine: is it a volume issue, which right. it can be. We know excessive volume is not good, and technique is the major, major mm-hmm. determining factor. Though. If technique is incorrect and you're doing repetitive motions, putting your body in a poor position, bad stuff happens. Yeah, and I, I mean, just right off the bat, uh, I don't want to spend too much time on it, but, I mean, you see so many, even at the collegiate level, you see so many uh, people with their elbows bent at 90 degrees hitting a forehand, and you're thinking, oh, my gosh, how does that elbow survive, you know, um, instead of having their arm a little more extended? Um, just something simple like that. The speed, you know, I think uh, the equipment and the speed of things sometimes uh, just, you know, compromising that joint. So you overuse that quite a bit. That's going to get banged up pretty good. And then we've been doing a lot of work at the Institute on serve, serve technique, and then serve volume. Uh, And it's a really interesting area. We know that at most levels of the game is a little variability, but anywhere between 40 and 60 serves a set um, is is pretty uh, traditional. Uh, Sorry, per match. 40 to 60 serves in a two-set match. So from that perspective... Um, we've got a, you know, a range that we understand. Uh, it can be significantly more if the match is closer. It can be somewhat less if the, if the match is really quick. But we know that we're somewhere between 50 and 100 serves is sort of where we ballpark out. And there's a huge range, as we know. Tennis isn't a timed sport, so score determines everything. But it gives us a sense of what the stresses are during a match situation. And then we have to understand we need development time. And typically when we talk about serve, we recommend to serve in small chunks because that's how, one, you play a tennis match. You don't serve the entire set all in a row. You serve for 10, 12 serves or five serves if you serve really well one game, and then you are returning for a game. So we typically recommend between 10 and 30 serves in a, in a, in a block and then rest and do something else and then come back and serve again and then rest, and then come back and serve again. Also, be careful about always leaving your serve till the end of practice, which a lot of people do. That's okay once a week, maybe even twice a week to do that, because you do want to learn how to serve when you're fatigued. But if you're trying to work on things, and you're trying to work on velocity and some other things, you want to do that early in practice when you're not as tired, when your legs, when you still have some legs left, and you can actually work on some of that stuff. So you really need to be smart about how you're structuring your training. That's uh, just, that's golden right there. Really good advice. Wow. Um, we're uh, we're listening to Dr. Mark Kovacs, um, and he's the CEO of uh, Kovac Institute. And um, uh, it's been some some great advice. He's a PhD in exercise physiology. And um, just to uh, kind of maybe finish up a couple items on the uh, on some things from your book, that's where I've been uh, drawing some of these questions. Um, you mentioned about most of tennis is 80%, about 80% of his lateral movement. Now, when, uh, when people, you know, obviously that's, a, you know, along the baseline, et cetera, um, is this 
I presume this is descriptive, not prescriptive, because we're always trying to get people to come forward. <laughs> uh, but it is, you know, uh, descriptive, I think, is what you're saying. And um, is there a, a way, uh, maybe resources or things you might have that might help them? Um, for example, you know, I spent a lot of time just getting people to understand how they recover on a lot of shots in a cross-step shuffle to get to a ball as opposed to a shuffling constantly across the court. I mean, I've, I've never seen a sprinter ever shuffle to a victory. So, you know, getting people to, to work on those things, there's there are a lot of drills. Do you, are some of your resources um, either visual, like a video format, or uh, in terms of... Uh, you know, more in a textbook form that uh, might help people on those? Sure thing. And, yeah, as you said, the lateral movement, that encompasses more than just staying on the baseline Mm -hmm. as well. We have a little bit of multidirectional type movement, but it's just saying tennis isn't played, you know, north-south very much. It's played east-west these days. You know, so we're really having to move laterally as much as possible, and you're 100% right. Big steps are how the fastest athletes in the world move. Your athletes are always faster in the air than on the ground. Every time you take a step, there is braking forces involved. You have to slow down to reaccelerate every single time. So every extra step you take is actually you getting slower in a defined distance. The best movers in the world, if we look at Serena, if we look at uh, Federer, if, you know, if we look at Djokovic, when they're moving side to side, they're taking two to three steps only from the tee to the single sideline. Whereas if we look at poor movers, they may be taking five, six steps for the same distance. So it's you're really, really right about that. It's more exactly. of a glide, yeah. Although yeah. you look at but Ferrer, a, you look at David yep. Ferrer, I mean, the, the guy has, I think he's got uh, 500 steps per second. I mean, the guy, is, his footwork is lightning fast, but uh, would that just be an exception? He, you know, he tends to be really bouncy, kind of hyper on the court. Yeah, and but if you actually watch him, he mm. does take more steps than Federer. Same with Nadal. Nadal takes more steps as well. Yep. And I sort of break those guys into this three types <laughs> of movers. You have your efficient movers, which is your Federer's and Serena's that really take the biggest steps. Um, and then you have your power movers, you know, which is like a Nadal, a Ferrer, things like that, where they get to where they're trying to get to because they're great athletes, but they're really not as efficient as they could be doesn't mean that they're doing it poorly. It just means it takes a lot more effort to mm. get the same distance. Right. And if we were teaching young players, we always want to teach the most efficient option. doesn't mean you can't be successful with a slightly more inefficient option. It's just it's a lot harder work. Uh, so, and then you have what I call poor movers. Those are those pro- people that just look like uh, you know deers on ice, and they really just struggle to maintain balance, um, and they need a lot of training, retraining, things like that. Uh, but from a resource standpoint, uh, there's a few options. One, if you're a tennis coach listening, uh, take a look at the International Tennis Performance Association. Their levels of education there, and it goes into a lot of this, the right step counts, the right ways to train, things like that. Uh, and then also, personally, we've developed a pretty extensive, it's called the Movement Series, so a little over four hours of videos. Um, education on the topic of movements. We go through first step movements, recovery movements, uh, transition, transitioning from the baseline to the net, net specific movements, not only for doubles players, but singles players as well. Uh, and then also moving after the serve and the return. Because a lot of times we know how important the serve and the return is, 
but very few people actually train how to move mm-hmm. well after right. those two shots. Yep. So we spend quite a bit of time on that. So um, I'll give you the links to that underneath the, uh, the podcast information and you know, people can check that out as well. Great. Well, uh, for those who might be just tuning in, um, you're listening to the Coach Steve Clark PhD show with Dr. Mark Kovacs. He's the CEO of Kovacs Institute. And be sure to share the podcast and the website. My website is coachsteveclarkphd.com. But you can also go to Dr. Kovacs' uh, website and with a lot of the resources he has there at uh, www.kovacsinstitute.com. Dot com. That's K-O-V-A-C-S, institute.com. So uh, one thing I've noticed a lot, and I don't, I'm curious what your experience is on this, Mark, is, um, and I don't know if it's uh, an age group thing, but I've noticed over the years in teaching, uh, particularly uh, in the juniors, um, a lot of kids are on their toes like they'll step into a closed stance forehand with their toes not the balls of their feet they'll be like on their toes or you know barely on the balls of their feet and a lot of times I'll ask them were you in dance or ballet or cheer or something like that and a large percent of them uh, were but it's a heel toe move and, you know, for the most part, I mean, there's sometimes when we're on the kind of the balls, just that very front part of our foot. But, you know, tennis really is, um, it seems to me, when you're watching or even playing, particularly at net, you know, your dominant foot, foot I mean, it's fairly flat. It's not on the, on the, on the toe. And uh, you can't generate uh, power if you're, you know, you're standing on your toes. And if I ask players just to, hey, let's okay, stand on your tippy toes, not try and jump. I mean, it can't happen. And uh, but it's interesting that a lot of people, for some reason, maybe they're t- taught to be on your toes, um, not even the balls of their feet, but uh, they can't transfer their weight or power. Have you seen this or is this uh, is there anything um, uh, out there that, you know, people are taught that maybe, you know, uh, some coaches aren't aware of? Yeah, no, no, you bring up a really good point, And that does happen. And one of the big reasons why is because many of these athletes especially female athletes as well, they're very quad dominant. Their quads are overdeveloped relative to their hamstrings and their glutes, and they want to shift their weight excessively far forward, which does exactly what you're saying. It puts all their weight on the front of their legs, puts more pressure on the knees as well. So all these factors have this cascade of events. It seems like a minor difference being on the ball of your foot versus being on your toe. But by doing that, you've shifted weight forward and just that slight shift not only lessens your ability to generate force because you don't have as much pressure per square inch on the ground to generate the force through but secondarily we've shifted all our weight into our quads and our knees uh, which puts more pressure on our knees so it increases potentially knee pain knee problems Uh, but longer term where Uh, it's this um, cascade of events where the quads continue to get overworked with less and less movement on our hamstrings and our glutes. So it's a vicious cycle that we have to try to get them out of. It sounds like a simple movement like you described, not a big difference between being on sort of the balls of your foot or the front half of your foot versus your toes. doesn't sound like it makes that much difference, but it really does have a big impact in the entire kinetic chain and how all the muscles activate as a result. 
Yeah, sometimes I just, uh, you know, I just explain it. You know, it's uh, we transfer our weight by walking, you know, and then when you're running, that heel hits the ground, you transfer your weight or uh, also squish a bug, you know, you squish a bug with the ball of your foot. <laughs> so uh, just trying to get people to, to, to uh, change that. So no, that's, I don't know about people listening, but uh, even though I've seen these things, it's great to hear Mark's explanation and it kind of uh, validates a lot of things you might see out there. So that's uh, that's valuable information. A couple of general questions here. Um, dynamic versus static stretching. Um, I'll just uh, let you explain the difference for those out there because I see, you know, you, we train it with more elite athletes. You get to the club players and let's say, you know, I've run boot camps for three to seven hours. I'll take some ladies out there and I'll, uh, or some other players and, and uh, we'll go, you know, maybe three hours one day, four hours the next day. And it's pretty rigorous. Um but even when they're in a situation like that, uh, they're reticent to want to do dynamic stretching. We do it, though. And then uh, dynamic stretching at the end. Because I think the perception out there is people don't want to pay for stretching. You know, they don't want to be that part of their time on court. But it's really important, I think. And even um, teaching them how to do dynamic stretching and static stretching properly. But maybe they'll maybe people as uh, more and more hear this from an expert like yourself uh, you could maybe uh, help them uh, really incorporate these things sure thing and yeah the basically the the two differences in dynamic stretching is you're stretching under under load and and length meaning that you're stretching the length while there's a load being applied so you think about um walking lunges type movements. So you're actually stretching and loading at the same time. That's the easiest way to think about it. Whereas static stretching is the traditional, hey, touch your toes and hold it for 30 seconds. You're increasing length, but there's no added tension on top of uh, what, what's happening there. So that's the main difference. And we know from the research that before speed, strength, and power activities, we want to predominantly do dynamic type stretching. That improves our next performance so our tennis play or our workouts and things like that static stretching is not bad don't misinterpret what's being said static stretching has value and increases range of motion it's safe to do the challenge is we don't necessarily want to do it immediately before a speed strength or power activity so you just got to leave around 45 minutes to an hour break if you are going to do static stretching before a type of activity so they're the two main differences uh, there's a lot of variations in between, meaning that there's hybrid techniques where you, it's a two-second hold and then you release. Uh, so, you know, there's variations of ballistic stretching, which is um, very good for speed athletes and power athletes. It's a little riskier for the average Joe. That's why it's not recommended. Um, that's where you're bouncing when you're stretching, and it, it does improve range of motion. Uh, but it's a little riskier, so that's why it's not usually recommended for the masses. Uh, and then there's a whole series of other stretches that you can do, which is partner-assisted. Uh, we use rope stretching. I've done a couple books on the topic. One's called Dynamic Flexibility, uh, and the other's called The Stretchable uh, Stretching Strap Workbook. Both of these are focused on uh, variations on uh, stretching routines. Uh, but again, it's one of those things that all athletes can benefit from good flexibility, as long as they're developing functional strength and stability in the new ranges. If you just increase your range without improving strength and, and stability, you can actually increase problems because you have this new range that you've created 
but you're not very strong in those new ranges, and bad stuff can happen then as well. I kind of an uh, yeah. I kind of uh, make an analogy for people. I say you're kind of like Gumby. If you really stretch those muscles out, there's no strength at the joint to kind of keep you from being like a jellyfish. You know, um, exactly. The, the stronger you are on a stretch, that's what you want. You want to have that stability and the strength. And that's you know, if you're chasing down balls and reaching, that's you know, that's where it pays off is being able to be you know, stretch but also strong. So. Um, you know, the static stretching at the end, um, how, how long would you suggest people actually focus on that? Like, what would be a good time? Yeah. Uh, the simple answer is as long as possible. But, you know, so, you know, there's, there's a minimum, you know, five minutes is an absolute minimum. I know people are rushing. They want to get home. They want to get to their next appointment, whatever it is. But you want to try to hit each muscle group, so quads, hamstrings, calves, you know, or core region, thoracic rotation, thoracic flexion and extension, shoulder, uh, all those areas. So it takes at least five minutes to hit each of those body parts at least one time, 30 seconds to 45 second hold. But preferably, we'd like to see up to 20 minutes for most normal folks. A lot of the uh, elite athletes I work with will stretch for a good hour. A lot of the sprinters I work with will stretch three hours a day because that's they know how important it is to their big job. Or you maybe stretch at different increments, like stretch after practice, then stretch before you exactly. go to bed, etc. Yep. Boy. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't all have to be at one time period, but yeah, they have to continually work on improving, you know, the range of motion. That's so good because one of the things that I think most people when they stretch, they think, oh, okay, I got to stretch my legs because that's what I just did for the last hour and a half, but really. Um, you know, particularly you mentioned it, the, you know, the core, the thoracic area, I mean, just to be able to do your, uh, stretches there, because, you know, what's really common is a player will play a match, jump in a car to go get some lunch, you know, even, uh, at the, uh, you know, USTA level or, you know, tournaments like that, or even collegiate level, you got to get to the hotel, you got to do this or that. And then before you know it, you're stiff as a board, you know, the lactic acid is set in. And, uh, so it's really important to do this. So I think that's a great, uh, advice, five minutes minimum, minimum, but boy, if you can just do it for a little while and just enjoy the decompression for 20 minutes, that's great. Yeah. Agreed. The more, the better. Usually very yeah. few tennis players I've ever met are, are too flexible. <laughs> that's, that's true. <laughs> um, I'd, uh, I'd mentioned before um, about the relationship between stress and our bodies. Uh, Mark and I had talked off air uh, about our between stress and our bodies and the connection between mind, body, and or, you know brain and stress. And uh, you know we have neurotransmitters and things that you know the fight or flight syndrome and the uh, you know these types of things where competitive stress uh, it starts this flow of these neurotransmitters and other things in our body that we have responses. And the bottom line is, and what I wanted to ask Mark was, you know, in general, um, when people compete and they get stressed, um, what are some general things that people could maybe do? For example, and I, he mentioned this uh, prior, I don't want to steal his thunder, but this is an example. In fact, I was uh, actually I'll use a different example. I was talking to a friend. And I said, "Look, I've had players in the past who breathe actually too quickly. It's like hyperventilating. They they're really energetic, and they were these were top twenty five NCAA athletes, and they they breathe really heavily. And I, I had to teach them to breathe more calmly. 
And just even how we uh, breathe and relax our muscles, it, it gives us more endurance. If you're constantly stressed and breathing shallow, you can also increase your likelihood. You, you sweat more, etc. You could, uh, you lose more fluids. Um, you could actually cramp, that people that don't even cramp normally cramp in a stressful situation because they're breathing more. And even, uh, like as Mark knows as a lecturer, even talking, you get dehydrated. Um, so, uh, Mark, just some, maybe some general comments, uh, possibly? Yeah, it's such an important area. And we know that from, you know, I worked at the Gatorade Sports Science Institute for many years, and we were testing cramping, hydration issues, things like that. And we, we know that there are some physiological responses that occur when you're dehydrated that increase risk. You know, electrolyte levels are a component. You know, hydration levels are a component. However, we also know that there's a neuropsychological factor that does contribute. It's why many times players cramp in competitive matches where their practice sessions are way hotter, way longer, way more tennis balls being hit, but they cramp at the beginning of the second set in a match. And that, Particularly like when they're said, ahead. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When they start feeling that, hey, they're about to close out a match, it's things like that. That's a hundred percent correct. The challenge is you have to recognize it before it's happening, because once it happens, it's very difficult to control. We see those players that start cramping, and you know, there's little things that we do. We have a lot of little tricks that we work with our athletes on that helps them get them through that. But it's much better to avoid getting to that point than to having those cramps and having those twitches. Typically, they'll start in your extremities. You'll get them in your calf, you'll get them in your forearm, you'll get them in your hamstring or your hip flexors. Uh, and once that hits, then it's a cascade of events where you start thinking about it and you start thinking, oh, no, I'm cramping, and then you breathe heavier. And we've actually looked at athletes. We've studied athletes with heart rate monitors and things like that. What happens when someone cramps? Heart rate spikes like, like crazy. Um, so the moment you start cramping, the good athletes that have been through it before, they have a breathing routine, they have a happy place we try to create for them and they take themselves to that can change the environment and change their story about what they're telling themselves. But it's difficult once they get to that point. So what? our goal always is to prepare them so they never get to that point. <laughs> what would a happy place example be with somebody you've worked with? So depends. For a lot of people, if you put them, you put them at the beach you put them in an environment where they just think of, you know, a waterfall or somewhere that is relaxing, that is slowing things down. The goal is to slow down their breathing, slow down their mind, take their mind away from, oh, my heart rate's going up, I'm like my hamstring's starting to cramp, and that is the challenge. It's really hard when it happens, but you know, a lot of these athletes you can train them like you train any other skill. It's, it's positioning them away from the stress and recreating an environment that's less stressful. That's just a great answer as usual, so I really appreciate that. I want to segue into uh, youth issues. You know, my website and the stuff I focus on is uh, all levels, uh, parents, players, and coaches, and particularly, you know, uh, parents of younger players. Um and those young players themselves. So I've got a question. Um, 
for the youth, you know, 12, 14, maybe 16 and under, that sort of thing, what are the weakest, most vulnerable areas physiologically that you would like to address? And, it, you know, obviously it may be different for girls and boys, uh, you know, different, they grow at different rates, et cetera. But what are you seeing out there that people could be aware of and uh, what might they do to mitigate it? Sure. I mean, as athletes are growing up, one is be exposed to as many different sports and stimulus as you can. Multi-sport training is so big and so important at the younger ages because you need to be exposed to every movement under all conditions. That's step one. Step two is making sure we don't have significant imbalances, uh, meaning that our left side or our right side isn't significantly stronger or our front side and our back side of our body isn't significantly stronger. And most tennis players do have significant imbalances, partly because of the one-sided nature of the sport, but two, also because of their lack of focus or training on the right things. So most of the time, we really focus in on ankle range of motion, because that's where the last joint before the, uh, the body touches the ground, and most tennis players are really tight through there. And that creates a cascade of events up the chain, which causes problems in our hamstrings, in our knees, in our lower back. Uh, and we want to take care of that early on. So stretch your your calves uh, every day as much as you can. I have a little routine I ask all our players to do is every time they go to the bathroom or every time they go and eat, they stretch their calves for 30 seconds to two minutes. You know, So that's a nice cue reminder to focus on that. Then we spend a lot of time making sure that they have good core strength. You know, all the traditional core exercises are valuable. The plank variations, you know, are very, very important. Most athletes don't do them technically correct. They cheat. They are lopsided. They don't hold them mm-hmm. long enough, things like that. So emphasize that. Uh, and then taking care of the shoulder meaning that we want to stretch our internal shoulder rotators. We know that's what gets tight in tennis athletes. And we want to strengthen our external rotation using bands or very light dumbbells or things like that. So those would be the three or four sort of go-to areas that is going to help every tennis athlete. doesn't matter their level, but especially at the youth athlete level. Wow. That right there is, uh, is highly, highly valuable. That's, uh, in fact, it's uh, one of the things uh, I'll probably just segue into that because um, I have another question about push-ups. But uh, the core, um, a lot of times when people did core, uh, they did a lot of twisting. And nowadays, you know, a lot of the uh, strength and uh, uh, speed trainers um suggests that when you do a core exercise, you know, planks, you're pretty locked in. But, you know, uh, if we do some Romanian twists or if we're doing these ball twists where we're, you know, moving a med ball from side to side, it's really important to keep the actual torso as locked as possible so you're not twisting around the spine. Um, any any thoughts on that? Is that accurate? Sure. So, yeah, there's there's a a lot of discussion in the research as well on this topic between a stable core um, versus a flexion or extension or rotation movement. So there's two components to this. One is what's the sport that we're talking about? Because all sports are different. If you're a 
running athlete, let's say an NFL quarterback, uh, sorry, an NFL wide receiver, um, you know, or even a running back, uh, you, you're running most of your career and you're getting hit. They're your two things that you do. Uh, occasional catching here and there, but generally you're running and getting hit. So for them, they don't need a lot of flexion extension at the core that often. Whereas for tennis, our entire life is rotating, flexing, and extending on every stroke. So we have to really understand that we do have to train that somewhat. We may not do excessive volume mm-hmm. like maybe we did 30 years ago, right. thousands of sit-ups every day, but we do still need to train flexion, extension, and rotation, but we need to also add significant amounts of isolated or isometric type movements, which are our plank variations. Mm-hmm. So we'll do a combination of both. Uh, and again, we do, we have a lot of advanced versions that can be implemented to increase with our athlete as our athlete gets stronger and stronger, more stable, things like that. And it's such an important component to not forget that we still want to do rotation work and flexion extension work because, you know, if you're playing a three hour match, count how many times you hit the ball and see how much you flex and extend on every shot. We need to make sure the athlete's prepared and trained for that. Right. Yeah, I think uh, one of the concerns was when people do it, for example, they might be too relaxed as they're moving, and that's, and you want to have a good core tension when you're doing things like that. You put in it slamming a mid-ball against a wall or something like that. It's it's core tension and not being relaxed. That's, that's where you can kind of over, you know, tax that area. Yeah, you're 100% right. Like everything else, you need to make sure you isolate the technique. Yeah. We want our... Transverse abdominis muscle group, which is the underlying muscle group that runs underneath the six-pack and around our body, that's the one that we're trying to activate. So by having good core tension, that's what we're trying, what we're talking about. You may hear terms uh, contract or brace or breathe in. They're somewhat different terms, but a lot of the time they're trying to get at a similar type positioning where we can get a contracted intra-abdominal pressure while we're still able to breathe. So just like hitting it forehand, there's a right way to do it and there's a wrong way to do it. we got to make sure that we're training the correct way. That's good. Push-ups. I've uh, heard a lot of people saying, you know, uh, boy, push-ups for young kids is is uh, is not healthy for them, et cetera. Uh, and I don't know if it's anecdotal, but I've been having uh, – I remember my daughter started doing push-ups when, when she was one year old. I was doing push-ups, and she just started mimic me, mimicking me, and it was hysterical because, I mean, she literally had a full plank, and she was doing push-ups. <laughs> we have a picture of it. Uh, but, you know, they've been doing them for a whole time. Same thing with pull-ups. So th- those shoulder girdles and the chest and the back, they're, you know, they're strengthening. I, I can see it where if somebody's particularly not in shape or not used to that and they start doing them, it can cause some problems. But what is what does the research say, and what do you say about uh, you know using push-ups as and pull-ups as part of uh, um, regiment? Yeah, so it's a great great question. So push-ups in general is like most movements. Uh, you know, you want all your athletes to be good general athletes. So doing ten, twenty push-ups is not a problem. All athletes should be able to do that. The concern is when they start getting up to a very high volume, that's when you start breaking down at the shoulder girdle and we start getting excessive. Um, it's called, you know, hyperangulation, basically when the elbow gets behind the line of the shoulder 
and you start going down too deep and you lose your form and it puts a lot of strain on the front side of the shoulder. That's what we're concerned about. That's why we don't suggest using, say, push-ups as punishment because that's a really then you can do a lot of push-ups in a really short amount of time or as a negative consequence to you know losing a drill or something like that. Pick something else that you're going to utilize. Um, that's the big concern. So we don't typically recommend a lot of push-ups, but doing a few is, shouldn't be a problem if their technique's okay. Pull-ups, similar issues with pull-ups. It puts like, some strain on the shoulder girdle, but it's actually better than uh, push-ups from the standpoint of you know developing back muscles are important. So doing re- regulation pull-ups, Usually chin-ups is more recommended for most of the tennis players where we, we actually have our palms facing our face rather than our palms facing forward. Uh, it's just a little bit easier. We use our lat, um, as our rhomboids a little bit more. Uh, so, again, there isn't a good exercise or a bad exercise. There's just a riskier exercise, meaning if it's done wrong with too much volume, you increase the risk, and we want to lower the, we want to lower the risk as much as possible with our athletes. Well, I think one of the great things you mentioned this, and even uh, Peter Smith at USC talked about, uh, you know, just kids playing more sports. You know, because in tennis, everybody's trying to get more specific early on, et cetera. You know, it's good to play other sports. You know, I mean, I think you know you're probably the same. Uh, you know, my guys in my age group, man, we played everything. We played football, soccer, basketball, swam, baseball. You know, you played all these sports, and then you know tennis was one of them. And then you just kind of eventually gravitate towards one, um, and it just helps you with all you know the mobility, et cetera. So that, that was that's some great advice there. Uh, college students um, and adults, what do, what do you see maybe coming these days? Uh, you know, in the research or how you're seeing. What are some physio- uh, physiological issues that you think are probably the most uh, that we need to be aware of um, and how to how to deal with those? I mean, a lot of the college players have uh, strength and conditioning coaches, but just beyond that, you mentioned sleep, et cetera. What are, what are some of the things that you think that uh, collegiate players and even getting beyond some adult players need to uh, be aware of phys- physiologically? Yeah, no, it's true. A lot of the college athletes, unfortunately, are coming into college beat up. Um, their bodies have taken a beating in the junior levels. They may not have done the right types of training coming in. And I work a lot very closely with athletic departments, a number of athletic departments, not only in tennis, in other sports, and they're having the same challenges in a lot of areas. Uh, and the biggest thing is we need to not make sure the athletes are just trained like everyone else. Tennis players, we know, have so many nuances. The stress on the shoulders is excessive. We know that the volume is very high. Tennis is one of the highest volume sports out there. Uh, So we need to train them very differently than how we train a basketball athlete or a football athlete. And a lot of the time, the college strength coaches are overworked, understaffed, and they may put them in a program that isn't tennis-specific, that doesn't take care of the details when it comes to training a tennis athlete. And that's the sad part about it because you've got well-meaning coaches that you know want to do a good job but either don't have the knowledge or don't have the, the time because of resources to put in on these individual athletes. And individual athletes are so uh, different to team sports in a number of ways 
because of the movements and the parameters that tennis players go through. So, you know, that's one of the bigger challenges in the college world. They have great facilities. You know, they have an unbelievable opportunity to do it really well. Yet many of the schools really struggle to give the tennis athletes exactly what they need. Well, that's uh, that's good. I think even uh, uh, you know, strength and conditioning coaches at universities would benefit from this conversation because uh, I know uh, a lot of them do an excellent job. And you mentioned they're understaffed, probably the majority of them, and and uh, so that's good encouragement for them because I think a lot of them are trying to do that as specific as possible. But it's a good reminder, so that's great. Um, what changes have you seen in the game since you played, Mark? Especially, you know, obviously regarding physiologically. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I I stopped playing over 20 years ago now. Like, you know, so it's changed a lot. I mean, when I was growing up, physical, I remember I was in the Australian Institute of Sport program, so it was pretty much the national governing body at the time. And we had just started implementing, you know, we had a strength and conditioning coach, you know, and, and he worked with the, one of the Australian rules football teams. And we were doing the exact same workouts as the football team was. <laughs> it was the identical. We were there alongside these guys. Mm-hmm. You know, I was 16 or 17 at the time, and these guys were 24, 25, and 100 pounds heavier than me. Um, and we were doing everything they were doing. And, you know, it, now we're a little smarter. We realize, hey, we can't train them all the same. We have to really specialize, just like in every field. Um, and I think that's probably the biggest shift is we are doing a better job of specializing. The problem now, though, which is a negative, like everything, now that people have seen some benefits, everyone's trying to be overly creative with exercises and drills and, you know, adjusting things. And that's the real problem. The the simple ways of doing things is still the best. Right. So a lot of the time when I give presentations, people say, well, those drills are drills we do. I said, yeah, they're drills <laughs> that are good drills. Yeah. The problem with a lot of folks is you don't take care of the details. You don't take care of the specific foundational movement on each step. You don't load in the right parameters. That's where the improvements are made. It's not on making the drill complex because most of the athletes can't handle complex drills. They have to do simple drills really well, just like teaching a forehand you know, or teaching a backhand. It's about hitting cross-court and down the line. It's not about anything else, but it's about doing that better and better and better. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's funny you mentioned it, or, or you, <laughs> when you said you worked out with the, uh, I think it was Aussie Rules or something, you said that yeah. workout, and you said, well, we're a lot smarter now. I'm, I must have been pretty stupid because in college I worked out with the football guys. I mean, I could bench 300 pounds, but it, you know, <laughs> it was that's pretty funny, so I must have been an idiot back then. So. Um, what adjustments then? Well, I think you mentioned that uh, some of the adjustment coaches and parents can make is I think what I heard you saying is a um, the old adage you know uh, keep it simple um, and if it's if it's a correct thing you don't have to get fancy about it um, but just yeah you mentioned pay attention to the details and that's where getting more educated on uh, you know what what proper technique is and where uh, energy is generated from etc is that is that a good assessment short sweet yeah. And- Exactly right, and that is the challenge. I mean, I said it pretty flippantly, like just focus on the details. The details are everything, like in every industry. The reason you have great coaches is because they're so skilled at the details. Their drills are no different than every other coach out there. It's just they do the details so much better. You see it across every sport, and that takes decades to learn. And that's why experience is so important. And that's one suggestion to all the young coaches out there is 
even if you're great at what you do, even if you're the best in the world at your age, you still don't have the experience of someone that's seen that, you know, for 25, 30 years. Learn from those folks. I was fortunate because I've been around tennis people all my life. And at the USTA, I had guys like Tom Gullickson and Andy Brandy and Jay Berger and, you know, guys like that every day to speak to and Ola Malmquist and, you know, to speak to and Jose Higueras every single day that we just talk tennis all day, every day. And, you know, they've forgotten more than I will ever learn. And so I could pick up things just by going to lunch with those folks on a regular basis. And that helps shape me and the work I do from a movement standpoint and a biomechanics standpoint, because most of them come out of a little bit more from the feel standpoint. And, but they're seeing the same things I see when I look at the hips and I, when I look at the thoracic spine and when I look at rotation. So it's really, really important to learn from the experience. And everyone has experienced people in their communities that they can learn from. And it's so, so important to utilize those resources where, wherever and whenever you can. That's, uh, that's great advice. Um, I just have a couple of questions uh, before we end our time here. And this is from listeners. So, uh, some people that uh, uh, emailed in some questions. Um, one gentleman, he's in the, he, he says he's in the 40-plus grinders on the tennis court. And he says, so what exercises uh, would uh, uh, Dr. Kovacs recommend on and off the court to maintain efficient court movement? Kind of like he kind of went on to say, maybe what's the number one part of conditioning for this crowd that is most often overlooked or ignored? Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. I mean, step one, I would say get yourself in really good condition, just general conditioning. And when I say conditioning, I would do a lot of intermittent sprint type work, whatever you can handle. So depending on your age and your ailments and your physical limitations that you may have, uh, a lot of the time, you know, the more you can spend time, say, on bike sprints and repeat bike sprints, if you can be on a soft surface like a grass field or a turf field, do some intermittent sprint type activities over a 36 foot distance, which is the width of a tennis court. You don't need to cover much more distance than that. So I don't typically recommend, especially with the slightly older population, going out and doing sprints over larger distances because that's when you start getting hamstring pulls and lower back issues and things like that. So keep it within distances similar to what you'll see on a tennis court. Uh, and do a lot of intermittent sprint activities to try to build up your legs, but also your lungs. That alone, even without focusing on the specifics of tennis technique, is going to make you feel so much better on court. You're going to have more lungs to, to last longer, and you're going to feel like your legs can handle those movements. So that would be the number one objective. The number two is you know work with someone who's knowledgeable in your area and try to make sure that you're efficient with your step counts. Most players at the recreational level aren't, um, so they're not really taking the right number of steps to the ball. They're not setting up as efficiently as they should, things like that. So work with someone you know, quite a few times to help you understand where are you today, get a good baseline, and then set specific manageable uh, targets that you can try to hit in two weeks, in a month, in two months' time, to keep you motivated on improving. Excellent. Um, and the last uh, uh, reader or listener mentioned, uh, and he's a little older, he says, uh, and this is fairly general, I think, it says, how do you actually increase our output during a time when 
individuals our age are generally in regressive mode. <laughs> I know them, so I, I, I kind of know, know what he's getting at. But, uh, you know, how do you increase we, the output? When can, yeah. can you give me an estimated age range? Are we talking uh, oh, so about 50, 60? Under yeah, 60. 60, perfect. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so we know that as individuals age, there is a slow decrease in muscle mass uh, in bone strength and a few of these factors. It's a physiological response. It, it happens. We know it. The thing, there are things we can do to improve that. One is increased growth hormone and testosterone levels. There's ways to do it naturally through foods, through better sleep, things like that. There is um, supplementation that can be done as well. So that's one avenue to explore. Uh, the other is strength training. If you strength train at a relatively high level, meaning that you're trying to push relatively heavy weight for your age and stage of development. Again, not being risky, not putting yourself under load that could cause problems, but trying to sort of push yourself a little bit. That has been shown to be one of the best factors that can really help you as you age. It slows down the muscle atrophy or the sarcopenia that occurs, um, which is the decrease in muscle mass as you age, and you can actually maintain it quite well. And then the other thing is increase your protein levels. Most people don't realize that as you get older, you actually require more protein than a younger person. So it's really, really important that your protein levels are up as you age to try to maintain some of that muscle mass and try to make sure that the training that you're doing is optimized. That's that's just awesome advice. And, and related to that, and, and maybe you can uh, just... Uh tweak it or if I'm incorrect, but I think uh, the more you do the the heavier lifting, it actually increases your metabolism um, and your body's at a sustained higher metabolism rate, and then also it helps with uh, bone density. Is that correct? Correct, 100% right. Yeah, so I mean, there's a lot of reasons, even at that older age, to uh, lift some weights, you know. Uh, that's just, uh, that's some great stuff, Mark. Well, you've been listening to uh, the Coach Steve Clark PhD show with Dr. Mark Kovacs, uh, the CEO of Kovacs Institute. And, uh, you know, feel free to share uh, the podcast and uh, also the website. Um, it's CoachSteveClarkPhD.com. But also free, uh, feel free to go to Dr. Kovacs' site at www.kovacsinstitute.com. And when I put up the uh, podcast, uh, there will be some uh, information on that as well, how you can get in touch with him. Um, Just really, Mark, it was great having you on the show. Man, some great stuff. And I know, I know right now that there are going to be some uh, coaches and players and parents uh, emailing me. and just uh, really going to have enjoyed this show because there's a ton of great advice uh, in that. So just really appreciate you taking the time uh, to talk. Yeah, for sure. I love the work you do. Keep up everything that you've got going on and excited to see you at the court sometime soon. Yeah, I hope we're back at Nationals or something like that. Folks, feel free to drop me a line with your questions or comments regarding the podcast, blogs, or anything else. You can reach me at steve at coachsteveclarkphd.com. And uh, as the music intro and the ending song, uh, it's Mike and Bob Bryan's song, Let It Rip. Um, I always say on the court, let it rip, man, so you got to go for it. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll talk to you soon.